We are in Galatians chapter 6. We are wrapping up this series, and uh, next week, Lord willing, will be the last sermon in the book of Galatians, and, uh, and then we'll move on to uh, Easter Sunday, and we will uh, start after that a, a series through John, and we're going to look at the I Am statements from Jesus uh, until around Memorial Day uh, time. So that will be uh, what's coming next. And then in the summer, as we, as we usually do, uh, we're going to pick up with Proverbs chapter 10, and we'll walk through the Proverbs again this summer. Lord willing, uh, that's our goal. So this morning we are in Galatians chapter 6, and we're getting to the end of Galatians. It's been a very good book, a very helpful book. This is the 15th sermon uh, in this series. Almost as many um, as we had in Jude. Remember how I stretched Jude? One chapter, uh, I stretched that thing out over uh, almost as many weeks as, uh, as Galatians. So, uh, this morning, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to do what I don't always do, and I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God today. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as Isaiah says, that as the rain and the snow goes out to water the earth and to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it, so also does your word go out. And we thank you that you have assembled us this morning to hear this word from you. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, who is our counselor and who is our guide to truth, that we may hear from you today. I pray that in hearing from you, that we would be receptive, that our hearts would be soft, and that we would be responsive to the word as you apply it to our hearts today. Use it for your glory and for your majesty, and that we may reflect you and become more and more like you, Jesus. That's our prayer today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In preaching classes, uh, I used to take these classes, and occasionally I would get um, this symbol right here. This symbol right here means land the plane, right? You're going way too long. You're circling the runway uh, so many times. Just just bring her down, uh, and let's, let's end this thing. Uh, I occasionally needed that, but I also have occasionally needed to give that signal to other people. 
uh, it means just to bring the message to an end. And so Paul is in that runway period. He's bringing the letter of the Galatians to an end. He's been describing the Spirit-filled life. That was last week. How do we live by the Spirit? How do we be filled with the Spirit? How do we walk with the Spirit? What's the fruit or the results of living a Spirit-filled life? That was last week. Now Paul has his eyes on the runway, and he's bringing it to a close. And one of the more common ways that Paul ends one of his letters is with a term called paranesis. Paranesis is uh, a Greek word, uh, and it describes a section of exhortation. Exhortation is just encouragement, but more than encouragement. If I encourage my kids to clean their room, that's kind of what exhortation is. It's like, it's not necessarily a request as much as it is a command stated gently. It's an encouragement, with, but with some force. It's more like a pushing or urging or goading or prodding. Uh, has anybody ever seen a cattle prod? Just raise your hand. Anybody work on a farm or something? You see a cattle prod? Uh, it's often a stick or a long uh, branch or something used to poke or to direct cattle in the direction that you want them to go. Uh, there's also an electric version for those of you who are um, uh, interested in that. It's called a hot stick, and, uh, and it, it, it's very encouraging. Right? It, it really helps move people in the direction that you want them to go. Um, I remember in the 1980s, uh, when Indiana Jones movies came out, anybody see those Indiana Jones movies? My brother got one of those bull whips um, because everybody wanted a bull whip like Indiana Jones, and he was terrible with that thing. And and it caught me one time. And so when I heard that, it was a it was a prod. It it got me moving uh, in the right direction. Uh, similar to maybe a leather belt that gets uh, yanked through, you know, belt loops that'll kind of get people moving. Um, or, um, you know, you walk in a locker room and somebody's got a towel all twisted up. Uh, all those things are like cattle prods. They get us moving in the right direction. Uh, that's beside the point. That's all bonus right here. The, that's kind of like Paul's uh, paranesis sections. They're, they're short sections of kind of random, rapid-fire urging or prodding or encouragement or commands. It's very common in many of his, uh, many of his letters. Um, um, one uh, commentator says it this way, the extensive ethical advice that Paul sends to his congregations is called paranesis. This moral instruction is commonly found in the literary epistles of the Greek philosophers. And usually this kind of moral teaching is found toward the end of Paul's epistles. If you need other examples, you can look at Romans chapter 12 through chapter 15. It's a long section of quick, rapid-fire commands. Galatians chapter 5 through 6.10, this is another section that we're dealing with. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, through chapter 5. Colossians 3 and 4. Uh, Paul's paranesis is traditional moral instruction drawn from the teachings of Jesus, from the Old Testament, and from the best moral traditions of the day. It was the sort of teaching that he would have shared with his congregations when present with them. And so that's what we come up to here is a section of um, seemingly disjointed uh, separate commands. And we have four primary ones here. If someone is caught in a sin, you should restore them gently. Um, verse 6, if, if someone is taught the word, they should be sh uh, sharing all those good things, giving feedback to the teacher. 
verses 7 through 8, uh, you reap what you sow. And then verses 9 through 10, a section encouraging us to keep doing good. So we're going to get to those four uh, points this morning, and we're going to teach them. Some have tried to connect that with what it means to walk by the Spirit, saying that if you're doing these things, you're walking by the Spirit. Um, but if you understand um, uh, epistles or Greek letter writing in the Roman world that Paul would have been very familiar with, um, this is just a very common technique that was tacked onto the end of letters. You know, it's kind of like... Um, if a parent is leaving a kid at home, right, and they're frantically trying to get out the door and there's kids here and it's kind of like, don't forget to do this and make sure you do that and don't leave the iron on and don't cook anything and don't pop popcorn and, you know, don't leave a mess. It's, it's that kind of rapid fire out the door before I run out of time. Let me just say all these things. I know that maybe some of you can relate to that either as the giver or the receiver. Uh, so let's get back into the text. Verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This first exhortation describes the action of being caught. The action of being enticed or ensnared or entangled. Uh, think of a net. Um, compassion, compassionate people restores and rescues that which is trapped. You can tell a lot about a person uh, based on how they treat an animal or something that is trapped. And not too long ago, I saw a video where a group of um, uh, conservatory uh, volunteers for uh, an ocean conservatory group, I think it was in Namibia, would scan the coastlines for these colonies of sea lions. And there are all these videos of them uh, chasing down uh, into those colonies and, and jumping on top of a sea lion and wrapping its snout or putting a net over it and, and untangling it from fishing line. Uh, and you can bet those things fight and they are dangerous and they bite and... Um, and it's not just dangerous for the sea lion, but it's also dangerous for those who are trying to rescue it. Uh, maybe sometime in the past you've caught a fish and, um, and you've got that hook. You didn't set the hook right and it got too deep in its throat and then you had to dig in there. And, and while that fish is flopping around, right, there's a danger to the fish that it'll damage its insides or that you'll get that hook stuck in yourself. Um, Paul is describing this sort of compassionate but careful rescue. A compassionate and careful rescue. Because it's possible for us as Christ followers to get entangled or to get stuck in a transgression. And no one really sets out for this. You give your life to Christ, you become a, a believer and, and you start off and you grow in your faith and, and the Lord teaches you and strengthens you and delivers you. And there's a, a period when your faith is really growing and, and no one ever sets out at that point and says, I, I hope that one day that I find myself entangled or trapped in a series of sin or in a web of transgression. But it happens and we stumble into these situations that are tempting or difficult, and, and it's easy for a believer to get entangled temporarily in sin. I just finished reading the book that we gave uh, to parents last week, Little Pilgrim's Progress. 
And this past week, as I was listening to it, uh, there was a time when uh, um, Christian was sleeping in a field uh, along the way because he was so weary and he was caught by the giant despair. And the giant despair took him and put him in prison and he stayed there for a long time. He was trapped. And it wasn't until he remembered that uh, the promises of God were a key that would unlock the dungeon of despair. But it's so um, perfectly described being trapped and being stuck. None of us sets out for that, but it happens. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, he says those who are spiritual, just meaning those who are walking by the Spirit, your obligation to one another is to restore and to release, but doing so carefully. You also can become ensnared in the trap. This could um, apply to any kind of a transgression, whether it is an addiction, uh, whether it is a behavior, whether it's an attitude, whether it's a, a relational issue, uh, whether it is an issue with your words, whether it is an, an issue with your appetites, if you have an appetite for something that is not um, necessarily biblical or not necessarily Christian or not necessarily edifying. You've seen people with appetites that are out of whack or out of order. Uh, those of us on the outside that God has called us to walk with one another, when we observe this in each other's lives, it's our obligation to one another to restore them. Now, I love the fact that he says that this is something that you are obligated to do. You is the body of Christ. He doesn't qualify. He just says those who are spiritual, not the pastors, not the elders necessarily. James 5 describes it as those who are wandering from the truth and that those who go and find those who are wandering and bring them back uh, restores their soul and covers a multitude of sin. This is a loving, gentle shepherding going to get those who have left going to get those who are straying, or going to get those who are entangled in a transgression. And it reminds us of our shepherd Jesus, who leaves the 99 and goes after the one who is straying. This is the role of healthy Christian community. This is your role, that if somebody's not here, or if somebody hasn't been here in a period of time, uh, it's your obligation to shepherd and to go after those uh, and to continue to um, deliver those who are entangled or entrapped. Uh, the second command, uh, verses 2 through 5, he says, uh, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean, the law of Christ? He spent the entire book of Galatians seemingly in opposition to the law. Now he introduces a different kind of law. He's not talking about the Mosaic law that the Judaizers were trying to uh, get the Galatians to follow the Mosaic law. He is now introducing the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? It is found for us in Mark 12, recorded there. And uh, one of the scribes came up to Jesus in this episode and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered the other scribes well, this scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And in Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered, the most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he started to quote the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6 passage, one of the most quoted passages in the Bible altogether. 
recited by faithful Jewish uh, people regularly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall what? Shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. And so when Paul says that fulfilling the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens, he's describing the perfection of Christian legalism. That is, Christian legalism loves your neighbor as yourself, as your loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, surely you've heard uh, in this passage before the distinction, bear one another's burdens, verse 2, and also verse 5, for each one has to bear his own load. Bear your own, uh, bear each other's burdens, but each one has to bear their own load. Uh, what does that mean? How do we do this? It's two uh, Greek words, and they're both different. One is baros, and one is for Tion. Uh, both of these words are different. One describes a burden, uh, something that is particularly oppressive. So help each other with things that are particularly oppressive. And then the word in, in verse 5 uh, is load. And this word load uh, can mean cargo. It's used in Acts 27 when all the cargo from the ship was falling off uh, and they were dumping it in order to save the boat uh, when Paul was being shipwrecked. Um, and it describes a load that is being transported. So you may have heard this distinction before, meaning that we each have to bear our own load, meaning that we carry our own responsibilities and our own obligations alone. You're responsible for the things that God has made you responsible for, whether it's food or household or chores or finances or providing for your family or giving leadership or ministry or whatever it is that God has placed before you, whatever it is that he has put on your plate, that is your load to bear. And it is not anyone else's role or job to come and to carry your load for you. But we're also told here to help each other with the burdens. That is something oppressive or overly difficult or heavy. From time to time, we need this sort of assistance. I have a meeting tomorrow uh, with a, a man named Paul Miller, and, and I asked him last week, I need some advice. I need some counsel. I've got a situation that, that I'm not quite sure how to go forward with. And I, I, can I meet with you? And, and we went through you know, his secretary to find a great time for us to meet, and, and I intend to meet with him tomorrow morning for advice and counsel. I regularly need people who are older and wiser and more mature, in the faith that are maybe outside of a situation to, to give me perspective and to make sure that I don't have a blind spot and to, to make sure that we're operating things well. This is an example of he's bearing a burden with me. He's coming up underneath a burden in order to help me um, um, get through this in a way that is godly and wise and biblical and all those things. So you can make that distinction for yourself. 
either is this something that I have to own? Do I need to be responsible to carry my own load? And what load am I neglecting? Or is there an issue that is a burden that is too great for me to bear and that I need someone in the body of Christ to assist me with? Uh, let's move to the next one, verse um, 6 we're going to come back to at the end. But let's go to verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's describing a process of sowing and reaping. Has anybody ever uh, sowed a field? Anybody ever sowed seed in your yard? Yes, yeah, some of you. Um, I remember m riding my bike as a fifth grader on the campus, the university where my mom used to work. And I came up on this one statue, a huge bronze statue of a, uh, uh, called the Sower. And it was this bronze image of a guy with his hand in a, a pack that was around his uh, over his shoulder and, and his arm was in a motion like this, distributing seed. Now, this image is used here by Paul that if we're sowing actions, thoughts, or behaviors uh, in one of two directions, whether we are sowing to our flesh or to our sin nature or to our carnal desires, that there is a crop that will come out of the seed that we sow. What does the sower expect to reap? It depends on what kind of seed he's sowing, right? If he's sowing wheat, he expects nothing else other than wheat. If he's sowing corn, he's expecting corn. If he's sowing cotton seed, he's not expecting pineapples. He's expecting cotton. He would not expect something other than what he sowed. And that's absurd to think that we would get something else. In the same way, a person who continually sows the seeds, as it were, to please his or her flesh or sin nature or carnal nature can expect a harvest of destruction. Some versions say corruption or destruction. And the Greek word has a range of meanings that all pretty much include the same thing, complete destruction or devastation or complete corruption. And it could be referring to a life that is wrecked by continually walking in your sin desires. But it could also refer to the eternal destruction that takes place after the day of judgment. But this is the consequential and providential built-in consequences for sin. This is the consequential and providential built-in results of ongoing sin and fleshly living in a person's life. And it starts in this passage with the idea of deception and mocking God. Deception and mocking God. See, a person can deceive themselves into thinking that the gospel is so much about grace that we can live any way that we desire without any consequence. As we talked about in Jude, there were people who crept in unaware who taught that the gospel was a license to sin. Paul is saying that this is a mocking of who God is, and it is a self-deception that eventually will result in a harvest, a harvest either of judgment and destruction, or if a person sows to the Spirit, then they get life out of that. 
So what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? If we don't want to mock God and we don't want to be deceived and we don't want to sow to our flesh, he says sowing to the Spirit is what reaps eternal life. And so to sow to the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit. It is to be filled by the Spirit. It is to be keeping in step with the Spirit, being sensitive to the leading and to the conviction of the Spirit in your life, walking in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life, receiving the counsel and the comfort and the reminding when the Spirit teaches you something and instructs you in some way. All of those benefits and fruit of living the Spirit-filled life, all those behaviors lead to a, a real result, a harvest of eternal life. We talked about it last week that the Spirit-filled life is not some obnoxious, crazy, flopping-on-the-floor sort of gold-in-your-mouth kind of weird abuses and excesses that we see in many charismatic and Pentecostal circles. The Spirit-filled life is incredibly practical, and it is incredibly rational, and it is incredibly fruit-producing. The Spirit-filled life looks like the fruit of the Spirit. A person whose life is filled with love and joy, peace, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit. That's the evidence that you're living a Spirit-filled life. If you're filled with peace and love and joy and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says nothing about the excesses. A pastor in New York had a woman come up to him and she said, uh, we need to see more signs and wonders in our congregation. There is no evidence of the Spirit moving in our congregation. We need to see more signs and wonders. And, and the pastor kindly looked at her and said, do you see that woman over there? She and her three children have been evicted from her apartment. And I would consider it a sign and wonder if you would house them for the next three months and take care of their physical needs meaning that there's an extremely practical sense of living a Spirit-filled life. It is borne out in good works. And good works are described here in the final two verses. Verses 9 and 10. He says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. There's that language again. If we keep doing good, if we don't grow weary in doing good, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he repeats this, do good, doing good, uh, and let us especially do good to those who are of the household of faith. Now listen, a letter that is seemingly so filled with... Um, you know, against legalism and against works-based salvation, Paul all of a sudden is now encouraging us to do good works. Is that ironic? Is he contradicting himself? No, because good deeds and good works have an essential place in the Christian life. They have an essential and proper place in the Christian life. They are um, placed after salvation. God has saved us to live and to walk in good works. A few years ago, I went through a sermon series based on uh, this idea of good works, and we walked through Titus, and we walked through a couple of other places where it describes the Christian's life being filled with good works. It is right for us to do good works. The Spirit actually produces good works through our acts of faith, but it always comes after a person gives their life to Christ. 
and not before in order to gain favor with God. That's the distinction. If your motivation is to be right with God, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and only through good works, then you've got works in the wrong place. Before you come to Christ, your only obligation is to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus. Once you've done that and you've placed your faith in Jesus, as John 3 says, you would be born again, born again of the Spirit. In that way, then you are saved to walk by the Spirit and then to produce good works. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about um, a lady named Tabitha in the Bible in Acts chapter 9. Uh, you might know her by her other name, Dorcas, if, just in case you're looking for uh, baby names. Um, most common baby name, uh, circa 32 BC, I guess. Um, but there was in Joppa, in Acts chapter 9, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, Acts 9.37 records, in those days she became sick and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Uh, they heard that Peter was nearby, so they went to get Peter, and, um, and when Peter came and went to be with them, when he arrived, they took him into the upper room, and listen, all the widows stood beside Peter, and they were weeping, and they were showing him uh, it says tunics and outer garments that she had made. Isn't that beautiful? Picturesque. Look at the garments that she has sewed and made for people um, while she was with them. It says Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened up her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he took her hand and he raised her up. And then he called the saints and widows and presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. Listen, her life, when they described her, her life was characterized by good works. She was characterized as a disciple. That was the term they used. She was a follower of Jesus. And she was a disciple and as a result of her position as a child of God and as a disciple, that as a result of that, she served widows. She was full of good works. She was generous with her resources, described as acts of charity. She made things, tunics and garments that she had made. This was her life. As I was reading through that, a life filled with good works in the name of Jesus as a result of our gratitude and salvation and as a result of our spirit-filled life. I saw this story on the Philadelphia News uh, maybe three months ago. Maybe you saw it too. It's about a lady named Marilyn O'Donnell. Uh, and let me just read some of the, the uh, article to you. Uh, it says, A Montgomery County woman is sending brotherly love around the world using recycled fabrics and a lot of sewing skills. She says, I have all the time in the world, so I can just keep sewing. After she had lost her husband about six years ago, O'Donnell found her purpose right here behind a sewing machine. She said, I could play cards all day long, I could play puzzles, I could watch TV, but I want to do something for somebody. Says this North Wales mother of eight and grandmother of 26 turns donated sheets and pillowcases and curtains into dresses and gives them away. She was inspired to start after one of her daughters went on a mission trip to Haiti. 
She says, Mom, you've never seen anything so poor in your life. So she put out the word to her friends, give me all your old fabric. Old drapes, I'll take them all apart. Any sheets that you have that are torn at the bottom, I can go around the sides and use the sides. Fitted sheets, I'll take it all and I'll cut all the elastic off, O'Donnell said. Each dress takes her about five and a half hours to make, including the finishing touches like flowers and other things. Somebody gave me a bunch of these and I just love them, O'Donnell said. I make sure that every button is a little different or every trim is a little different just so that they all feel that it's theirs and it's special. In all, O'Donnell has donated at least 2,600 dresses. Church groups and missionaries, even Maryland's own grandsons, take these dresses to places like Haiti, Nicaragua, Puerto Rico, and other places to give to young girls. She says, now I'm looking for someone who happens to go over to some place that could take them or anyone local that could use them because I don't want to stop making them. Marilyn turns 87, turned 87 in February, and she wants seniors to know that they are never too old to do something for others. I'll do this until the day I die now, O'Donnell said. Marilyn has 500 more dresses ready to go, and she hopes to find someone to take them to a country in need. Isn't that a wonderful example? Just a simple thing with a person redeeming the time in their life as a result of their salvation to do something practical, something necessary, something spirit-filled. But imagine a person receiving one of these uh, acts of love. And imagine someone, when Marilyn dies, uh, all the people that she's touched with a very simple act like this. And Paul says that this should be the regular life of the Christ follower. The regular life of the Christ follower is that we should be characterized by good works done in Jesus' name that primarily benefit those who are gathering in the local body of believers. Do you want to be rich in good works? Do you want to have the same Dorcas reputation even if you don't have her name? Um, do you want a, a, a place or an opportunity? Paul says start right here in the church. And do these good works, simple, good works that demonstrate a saved life. And as I was thinking about this, I thought how blessed we are in this congregation in that we have so many people who are full of good works like this. We, people in this congregation respond well when there's a crisis or when there's a need. And it's just the day in, day out, regular rhythm of life in this body. And I'm extremely grateful to serve and to be the recipient, but also a witness. There are so many times when someone has come to me and they've had a need. And what they wouldn't have known is that somebody else... Uh, had been praying for them and had uh, given me a check or given me something else to pass on to that person. And it's just amazing from my vantage point to see when someone has a need and when someone is prompted to give to that need and to be the, the bridge for that. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, one of the most amazing things that I get to be a part of in our congregation. We have a very generous congregation. Well, let's close here by circling back to verse 6. 
Verse 6, the one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now this sounds very self-serving. So let me just take myself out of the equation as the one who is teaching the word and just give you, I don't know that you've probably heard a sermon on this one particular verse, but he says such a small command when you're considering all the instructions and the commands in the New Testament But if we're redeemed, we should share encouragement from those whom God has used in our lives. In 1995 or something like that, I went to Nashville to a youth minister's conference. And um, maybe 15 or 20,000 youth pastors all in in this one auditorium, in this one room. And, and, um, you know, I mean, you can just imagine... uh, Youth Pastors Convention. Uh, it was a very interesting site, but there were so many people, and I didn't really know anyone. I didn't go with uh, people that I knew as a 21-year-old believer. had been a follower maybe for two or three years at that time. Uh, I saw a guy in the hallway, and and I, I immediately recognized him. See, when I was in eighth grade, uh, as a kind of an ornery, wild kid, uh, a friend invited me to a thing called Young Life, and it was a, kind of a weekly Bible study, games and skits and Chubby Bunny and all that stuff. And I went, and I had a good time. We sang songs at this one house, and, and then this guy would stand up, and he would share just a little gospel story from uh, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and he would tell a little bit about Jesus. And, and it was a lot of fun and a little bit of Jesus, but it made an impact in my life. And so all of a sudden, I'm in Nashville, and I'm walking down the hallway, and I see this guy, and I say, hey, you're Eric Peterson. When I was just a lost and kind of wild eighth grader, you shared the gospel with me in Norman, Oklahoma at this Young Life group. And I just want you to know that a few years later, I got saved and uh, the Lord changed me and, and transformed my life. And now I'm at a Bible school in Arkansas and I'm, I'm going into ministry. And, and I just wanted you to know that the Lord really used you in my life. Uh, and this guy was kind of shell-shocked because all this happened in a matter of a minute. I saw him and I, I unloaded this entire speech as though it was prepared, but, but it just kind of gushed out of my heart and I shared it with him. And, and he walked off and, and I walked off and I, I thought that was kind of the end of it. But maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, he came back and he had a group of five or six guys with him. And, uh, and he said, um, just last night, these guys were cir- circled around me and they were praying for me because I was so discouraged that I hadn't seen any real fruit in my ministry. And I was so discouraged because I'd been laboring in the Lord for all these years, and I I didn't feel like there was any benefit or any results at all. And I just wanted you to know, and and he got kind of emotional, and and I got kind of excited, and I just thought, isn't that just the way the Lord works, that he would put the fruit and the results at just the right time that you need a boost? Maybe this is what verse 6 is getting at. Let the one who is taught the word share all the good things with the one who teaches. Based on that, over the years, I've written notes to people, uh, including Luke 11 or Luke 17. Now, do you remember that story when Jesus walked into a village and 10 lepers kind of ganged up on him? And they were like, hey, you know, we want you to heal us. And he healed all 10 of them. And they said, now go show yourself to the priest. And, and as they were going, all 10 of them were healed. And one of them was so overwhelmed by the miracle that had taken place in his body, that instead of going first to the priest, he circled back around and listened to what he did. Um, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and began praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And this man was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not all ten of you cleansed? Where are the other nine? 
Was there no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I've often written a note to somebody who said, hey, I, I want to be like this one who turned and gave thanks. And so I just wanted to let you know I appreciate the work that you've done. And over the years, this has been a source of encouragement for me when others do the same. So I just want to encourage you uh, this morning as we close to think about one person in your life, a spiritual father or a spiritual mother, somebody who has taught you something that has boosted your faith or uh, has helped you along the way by teaching you the Word of God. And don't be like those nine who just went on with their life, but circle back around and express gratitude to the Lord for the work that He has done through someone else. I think that they'll be encouraged by that. Father, thank you so much for our time together today. Uh, thank you for a quick section of Paranesis exhortations and proddings and encouragements from Paul as he attempts to land the plane and close this letter to the Galatian churches. I pray this morning that, that we would benefit from one or two or maybe even all four of these exhortations and that we would put them into practice in such a way that our life can be characterized as someone who's redeemed and who is rich in good works. Someone who is doing good to those within the body of Christ as a result of their salvation. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.